Hello, um, I'd like to welcome you to, to the first in a series of interviews that will accompany the Conway Hall Residency. Um, these interviews will follow the experiences of the artist engaging with the work and collection of Conway Hall and give a bit of insight to other practitioners who might be looking to engage with organisations and collections. My name is Nick Caploni, I'm ArtQuest Senior Programme Coordinator and I'm very pleased to be joined by Sophia Kosmaglu, the artist awarded the Conway Hall Residency this year. Hi Sophia, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, great to be here. Um, I was just wondering if you could kick off by giving us a bit of context. So um, could you broadly introduce your practice and maybe say a little bit about how you um, sustain it and keep it going more broadly? Okay, so my work has always been about relationships and how identity is constructed through them. Um, and through a confluence of events, three different aspects of my life. So um, my art practice and research, my work teaching for um, to make an income, and my activism have come together in my current practice in um, alternative art education, or um, equally collectivity and pedagogy in art practice. Um, so this was this happened somewhat magically and I realized that it happened because these three things sort of would kind of pull pull apart and I was I felt guilty when I was doing the one and I wasn't doing the other so it has always been a problem for me but somehow these will come together and there's a an overlap and so the project I'm working on now to set up a cooperative art school is on the one hand part of my practice as an artist working with collectives uh, and collectivity and self-organization. Um, but it's also an attempt to create um, long-term stability and relationships and being part of a community um, that would combat precarity and isolation. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a combination of those two aspects of the practice and the way of sustaining the practice. Because I've always... Um, had trouble with that. Um, I've always worked, I've been teaching from a very young age, so I've always taught, and that's been the consistent way that I've been um, subsidizing my practice. Um, because even if you're selling two out of three pieces of work, you still have so many other expenses and, and one piece that you haven't solved. Um, that essentially, this is what kind of most, most artists do, is subsidize their art practice. Um, but I've also done commissions, um, I've worked as a film editor, I've done um, consultations, um, so anything really to pay the rent. And um, in terms of engaging with collections, have you engaged with archives and collections in this way before, as, as part of your practice or your, or not your in, work? Not in this way, um, but kind of in a more limited sense. I worked with uh, Yasha Reichardt at the Temerson Archive, working with, um, in particular, the Gavabocus um, Press Common Room, which was a project between 1957 and 59 that Stefan um, and Francisca Temerson ran uh, in the basement of their press um, where they had um, weekly meetings on um, the relationship between art and science. And that's where Yasha Reichardt came across this idea of cybernetics. So we did a board, a kind of a timeline with images, photographs and um, excerpts from the minute book uh, which had all the details of the talks and the events with 
um, cutouts and drawings and diagrams. So that was a, a fascinating process in working with uh, the archive. Um, and if we kind of reflect on your um, on your application a little bit, um, when you applied for the uh, the residency, you talked about how the art world acts as an institution of uh, legitimation. Um, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit about why you think legitimation can be so important for artists, and like what you mean by legitimation as well, a little bit. Okay, so artists need uh, recognition to produce and show their work um, and, and, and go on to produce more work. So they need institutional recognition, that's what legitimation essentially is. Um, but cultural institutions also legitimate corporations that sponsor them, so we call that um, art washing. Artists legitimate institutions, so I think of the Tate as a bank of cultural capital, and every artist that exhibits there deposits some cultural capital, and then every artist that um, goes through there and exhibits also withdraws some of that cultural capital. But critics and theorists and philosophers also legitimise the art institution as a whole. So that's why you get um, darlings of the art institution, like Ranciere, who says that anything that an artist does is critical, regardless of what, what they do, or Graham Harmon, which um, revitalises the idea of the art object, or um, Baudrillard in the 90s, who was a, um, a darling of the art world because he was engaging with the um, appropriation strategies that artists um, were using at the time. But then when he wrote the book, The Conspiracy of Art, he was excommunicated, and now you don't hear about him at all. And um, also, you, in, in your application, you talked about your um, PhD and made the case for building a, a network of autonomous art spaces and practices. Um, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about um, what might make a space or a practice autonomous. Okay, so um, an autonomous space or a practice is one that doesn't rely on external um, rules and um, constraints. So autonomy, there are two kinds of autonomy. So you have aesthetic autonomy and political autonomy. And there's been a lot of discussion and debate around whether those two are compatible or whether they actually are in conflict. So um, <clears throat> autonomy means um, self-rule, making your own rules. Um, and it's supposed to be what makes art valuable because art functions according to its own rules and therefore shows up everything else in society is being heteronymous, in other words, functioning um, or being instrumentalized for some other purpose. Um, the problem is that the art world doesn't work like that, however, and um, um, the culture industry and funding bodies put external pressures on artists, like the pressure to deliver on policies, competition, pressure to produce noble goods uh, and appeal to the market. Um, so that they can maintain visibility. Uh, what kind of journey brought you to these particular concerns in your practice? Like, why is it important to you to, to, to be looking at these, these issues? Um, I became disillusioned in the art world because there was not enough of a support network there amongst artists. And um, I left my gallery and started a PhD to figure out why this was happening. Um, so that's that's part of that's been part of the whole process of the last several years in my life that I've been trying to create that network of 
autonomous art spaces and practices that could establish different ways of working within the art world and solidarity amongst artists. I was wondering if you could say a little bit specifically about Conway Hall and the collections there that appeal to you. Okay, so the main um, thing that appeals to me about Conway Hall is that it has always been a space for radical political discourse and action. Um, and through my research, um, I wanted to kind of see how it was established. It's a very, it's a very old institution. It was established in 1787, and the first minute book is from 1807. And um, I've always been fascinated in that process of how institutions and collectives, so a collective is an institution as well, um, of, of, of a sort, um, how they um, establish themselves and then how social change happens because it's very difficult to, comp to um, document this kind of changes that happen collectively and in the everyday. So what's fascinating is that I'm seeing um, again, within um, the history of Conway Hall, as I've seen in other collectives and, and, and kind of long-term and even short-term um, collective pro projects, uh, uh, a, recurring, a recurring pattern. The, the organization um, grows, and then as soon as it, it becomes quite big, it kind of reaches a critical mass, factions form, and then there's a schism. And the organization or the collective or the institution either dissolves and that destroy that schism destroys it or the remaining members um, create a charter create an organizational um, structure or they create um, a, a constitution or a, a manifesto that strengthens the 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 institution and gives it that longevity so i'm seeing that in, in conway hall and that's what i'm I'm kind of looking for is what is what is it that establishes institutions? How do these human relationships create these um, long-term social changes um, and collective movements? Um, so that almost sounds like a, a, um, a model of reproduction for uh, institutions and organisations, so that they 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 kind of like you know they form and they develop and then alternative slightly alternative concerns and ways of thinking and values and priorities develop within the institution and then you get like a, a, a breakaway institution that, that then might repeat the process and grow and develop and stuff. Is that, does that sound fair? Is yeah, that, like that happens. You have breakaway institutions yeah. as well. Um, I'm sort of focusing on, or I've had more experience, or I've, most of the time I've seen the original institution and how it's changed. Uh -huh. So Conway Hall, for example, started off as a religious institution um, of dissident Methodists. And then in 1888, they changed their name from the, the, the South Place, they were called South Place Society, the South Place Religious Society to the South Place Ethical Society. So that was a massive move. And I've been looking at the minute books and there's nothing, there's nothing about it there. <laughs> Um, so uh, Alicia Chilcott, uh, the archivist, has uh, suggested I look at, in the ethical record, which is the collection of lectures that still happen every Sunday. Um, uh, so it's the, it's, it's the sort of journal of Conway Hall and see 
um, Moncure Conway's lectures because it was his influence that um, led to this change because he went through these changes from Methodism to Unitarianism to free thinking and secularism um, together with other people at Conway Hall as well but it's kind of finding those those discussions how those discussions happened and what were the dynamics because it, it wasn't uh, just Conway Hall it isn't always this you know this idea of the great man theory it isn't just si singular people it's collective energies that make these changes mm. happen um, could you say a little bit about um, uh, generally how you find opportunities and how you choose which ones to go for I mean is that something that you do a lot or are you more selective about it and how do you pick the ones that you apply for yeah very rarely apply for for things I I'm I believe in creating opportunities and working with people and that's what I've consistently done by um, joining or creating um, collectives and, and campaigns and projects like that. Um, but, and I, but I do look at the opportunities partly through my work as a, as a tutor, um, partly through my work and collective engagement with other people and I hear about opportunities so I do look at them. Um, and this one in particular had uh, a resonance with me, it just made sense, it clicked, um, and that's why I applied for it, and it feels like um, a really comfortable fit, it feels like a, 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 a Conway Hall and our quest, and the, the work that you've, so I've been following the work that you've been doing as well, and the consistency of the work that you've been doing, so it, it just made sense, and I'm really glad that I, I got it. <laughs> well, we are too, I mean, like, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that you're discussing is like really in line with some of our thinking around peer groups and sort of peer mentoring as well. So we're really excited to see what, what, what comes out of it. Um, and you mentioned a little bit already about some of the um, materials that you've been engaging with um, yeah. in the library and the Conway Hall collections. Um, is there any, are there any other particular discoveries that you've made that, that uh, you feel it might be worth sharing? Yes, several, and there are kind of several strands um, uh, of the of the research going on at the moment. At the moment, I'm looking at um, George Holyoke, who was, um, as one of his biographers has said, the, the patriarch of co cooperatives. Um, he was the man who wrote the history of cooperatives at the time in the 19th century and who popularized um, um, cooperatives through his writing and his um, pamphlets. Um, I'm also interested in uh, another important figure at South Place or Conway Hall, um, William Johnson Fox, who um, was an MP and uh, um, campaigned for the repeal of the Cornwalls, but also campaigned for political education. Um, so there are several strands, and all of these individuals that I'm looking for kind of knew each other. Um, so it's about kind of looking at how all of these really radical ideas, because at the time you had feminism and the, the women's movement, you had um, the campaigns for universal suffrage, um, uh, free, uh, the freedom of the press. So all of the, the people like um, Richard Carlyle and, and Charles Bradlaugh uh, and, and Annie Besant, who were part of the secularist new movement, and then um, George Holyoke, for example, came up with the term secularism. So. 
Conway Hall was a space where all of these ideas were um, being exchanged and, and that's another aspect of collectivity and social spaces because um, that's another aspect that I'm interested in is and I've been a member of um, spaces, social spaces, so social centres and how they can be a space that brings together a group of people through caring for the space for one thing because that's what, 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 is, what they have in common um, but also it's a space where they can meet and exchange ideas and so Conway Hall has, has, was at the time a hotbed of all of these um, radical ideas and that changed society. Mm. Uh, practically speaking, can you give us a bit of an insight into uh, the uh, procedures and the practicalities about um, accessing the materials and also just how you've been orientating yourself in the collections because I imagine there's a lot to, to, to sort of look at. Yeah, so I had an induction. Um, uh, Alicia Chilcott showed me to the um, two archives in the basement of Conway Hall, um, these kind of um, environmentally controlled um, vaults. Um, and I thought I was going to be left alone to roam in there, but, but no, um, I have to find the books uh, of the materials in the catalogue, and then Alicia goes and, and brings them up, and she brings them in on a, on a pillow, because the books are really delicate and they're so old and they're leather bound and they're really beautiful and written with calligraphic writing and ink and there are blots everywhere and um, there's also a, a weight, it looks like a, a curtain weight in kind of a silk pocket and uh, it's there so that you don't touch the pages, it's there to sort of weigh the pages down so you can read um, and this all kind of lifts the book up um, and so you have to kind of stand up to read it um, so it's all quite ritualistic but at the same time it's a bit sad because some of the books even on the bookshelves um, are falling apart so there is a kind of a, a sadness to it as well. Ultimately have you had any thoughts about what you'd like to achieve with the residency? So the main aim is to get together a team that can work on this idea of a cooperative art school. So the project has various aspects to it. There's a survey that people can fill in. Um, there are three workshops on the 23rd of November, on the 28th of November on the, and on the 3rd of December. Uh, I'm doing interviews with um, various people from alternative art schools um, and other groups and organisations and collectives. Um, I'm going to be publishing some pamphlets, um, so there are ways of getting involved but and then there's going to be a festival of alternative art education in March 2020 with a fair, workshops, screenings, exhibitions, um, performances, um, anything that um, members of alternative art schools and other collectives and organisations want to um, bring in. And, and then after that, a meeting for anyone who is interested in contributing and committing to working together to draw up the documents and constitution and business plan of this cooperative art school and, and figure out exactly how it's going to work. Because there are many models that we can choose from. 
it's all quite overwhelming but at the same time I'm distilling the information and making it more accessible um, for people to sort of start engaging with. And why do you feel the proposition of an alternative art school is particularly urgent and important right now? Well education is in crisis and I have always been wary of both publicly funded education and private education. So, of course, the privatised, neoliberalised, managerialised university isn't working. And um, these structures, these auditing structures of surveillance that are being sort of inserted into the university are, are, are kind of pervading it uh, and, 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 and distorting it at, at the same time. So, going back to a publicly funded model is it going to address the culture of the university and universities are, are, are massive, their scale is huge. How do they address uh, individual needs? Alternative art schools are small local solutions um, to specific problems. The idea of a cooperative art school doesn't um, mean that all the arts, alternative art schools would, would join into, into one institution. It would be more of a federation. And each, the, the value of the alternative art schools is that they each have been developing a very different model of alternative art education to fit the needs of their members. Um, so it's important to maintain that diversity. And again, this goes back to the idea of a network of autonomous organizations that work and communicate and exchange and support each other with, by pooling resources or having regular meetings and supporting each other with skills. Um, that is really important because what you need is localized knowledge that then creates a, a network of communication and exchange um, to create this, this movement as a an answer both to publicly um, funded education, which fulfills government policies and has all kinds of other problems, and privatised, neoliberalised um, higher education. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. Um, thank you so much.